This morning we are completing a nine-week journey that we've been on through this teaching series entitled Gifts of Grace, where we've been spending one week looking at each of the nine fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, both talking about what they mean and then how do we cultivate them, how do we uh, live them out and see them growing in our lives in the here and now. Um, So let's look at the scripture passage one last time. It's from verses 22 and 23. This is what Paul writes. He says, by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. This is the word of the Lord, friends. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we walk in here today, that we would hear your gospel, your good news, and that it would change our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this often happens when uh, I'm working on the last sermon in a series uh, because we really designed the series months and months before, and then there's kind of a gap before we start it. And then when I get to the end of the series, like we are today, that this week I was thinking about Did we accomplish or hope to see the things that we were thinking about when we designed the whole thing in the beginning? And you don't want to control that too much because often God takes things that are different than what you thought was going to happen and God does something with it and something cool happens uh, and, and probably more wonderful than what you could plan for. But I just think it's a good exercise to go, here's why we wrote this and, and did it feel like it met that place? Did it meet that need or not? And I hope that this time it has. Because uh, when we wrote this, we wrote it with something very specific in mind. And the specific thing that we had in mind was the kind of cultural understanding, the cultural mindset. And when I say the culture, I don't just mean like out there. I mean it lives in me, and it lives in you, and it's a part of all of us. Uh, Kind of what I would say is is a way of thinking, how do I find fulfillment? How do I find what life is about? How do I find happiness? And the cultural mindset that I think is very, very common uh, to each and every one of us, I would kind of phrase as a if-then mindset. If this was different in my life, then I would be happy. If these circumstances changed, then I would be more content than I am today. And the if is rarely about us having to change. It's about someone or something out there in the world, often that we have no control over, right? But if this was different, then my world would be better off, okay? This is something that when we hear it, it can sound silly, but it shouldn't because advertisers have been basically taking this formula and selling us products for decades and decades and decades because that formula works so well. It's never stated, but it's the, if you have this product, then you might look as happy as the people in the commercial, right? And it never is stated, but it's just how the associations in our mind naturally work. When I was in high school, as many of you know, I was a really mediocre basketball player on a very good team. All growing up, I had been a very good basketball player, but then I got to a really big high school, and there were a lot of really good athletes there, and I made the team, but I wasn't one of the better players on the team, and I was frustrated by that, and then I saw a commercial where it was invited to be like Mike 
where if I bought some Air Jordans, I could be like Mike. And so you know what I did is I saved my money and I went and bought some Air Jordans. And the result of that was I was still a very mediocre player person on a really good basketball team just with less money than I had before. But the if-then mindset, if I had this, then I would get more points. I mean, this is how we work. You're going to see this basic formula over the next year for every politician running for any office. If you elect me, then these are the good things that are going to happen. But if you elect my opponents, then these are the Armageddon that we're all going to experience in society, right? And so it's this thing of if this happens, then this better result, and you'll be... That's why we place so much hope in this stuff, right? It's an if then mindset. How does that work for you? How does it work in your life or in your family? If I were only married, then I would have more contentment. If my children were making different decisions, then I would have more peace in my heart. If we had more money, then we would be happier with less stress. If we could go on the vacations that we see other people taking in their photographs that they post online with the coordinated shirts and smiles and everything else, then maybe we would have the healthy family dynamic that I'm sure they have because every moment of every day must look exactly like that in their lives. If I was able to do the things that I wanted to do, then I could send my kids to private school. If my boss wasn't so mean about certain things, then I would have gotten the promotion and been better off. We live so much of our lives with this assumed mentality that happiness and fulfillment and contentment are out there if only these things were different. And rather than seeing that we never arrive at happiness and contentment, we're like kids in a car who keep listening to their parents and are like, are we there yet? And they're like, no, but it's just around the next bend. And it's never around the next bend. But we keep looking and going, maybe it's going to be around this bend. Maybe it's just going to happen this time. The reason that we know that this is a faulty way of thinking, as common as it is in all of our lives, is because if, if the if-then mentality worked, then we would be the happiest, most fulfilled, most content generation ever in the history of the world here today. Because we have more stuff and more opportunity than any generation has ever had before. And I'm talking globally. If you've ever traveled globally, you'll know that we have opportunities for ourselves and our children. I'm talking about us at Covenant, many of us in Austin, Texas, when a happening city in a country like the United States in 2019. We have opportunities. Our children have opportunities for education, for uh, success, for uh, vacations, for experiences. We have things that other people and almost everywhere around the world right now can't even conceive of or dream of. And we're happier because of it, right? We have opportunities that previous generations in this country around the world can't even begin to imagine. Possibilities of entertainment, possibilities of healthcare, possibilities of, uh, of, of, of vacations, of things that you can do, of disposable income with which to do it. There were previous generations that for most of human history have had to worry about things that most of us don't even think about anymore. Because of advances in healthcare, because of advances in crop production, because of advances in, in all different kinds of areas, we just have like an existence that almost every other generation around the world in human history could not conceive of in terms of opportunity. So therefore, we must be happier, more fulfilled, more content than any generation ever has been in human history, right? Right? What does science tell us? 
And I don't want to minimize this because science tells us there are very real progress that are happening in many different areas. And, and I don't want to minimize those, whether it's technology or opportunities or, like I said, healthcare. There are all kinds of signs and very real things of progress. But what I'm talking about is contentment, fulfillment. Science also tells us that while opportunities are going up for us and for our children in ways that they've never seen before, so are the pressures and the anxieties of living into them. So are there pressures and the anxieties of whether we're going to be able to qualify and live into this Christmas card existence that we feel like we have to have the pressure of doing and of succeeding in and of accomplishing? Science also tells us that anxiety, clinically diagnosed, is going up. Depression is going up. Suicide rate is going up. Fear of loneliness and isolation among people are going up. Some of that is about kind of a, an uprooted existence where we pursue jobs and careers and live in multiple different cities and away from family, away from the people we grew up with. And while there's unbelievable opportunities in that, it means that more and more of us, science is showing us, don't feel like we're really known by people. We're surrounded by faces, but not intimately known by other people. And there's a loneliness that comes with that and an uprootedness that comes with that. It's not that everything's going downhill, but the idea is that if then is like, if all these things worked out, other generations will be looking at us going, it must be amazing. Every day just must be a, 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 a journey into vacation land of, of joy and happiness at the lives you all get to live. I think this is what's driving so much spiritual growth and hunger among generations in our country right now and in our world right now is it's not because life's terrible and God's going to come find me in that place. Although that can happen and is real. I think for a lot of us, and this is certainly my story, it's that things were going really well and you're like, I don't feel all that happy. It's like things are amazing and it's just not all that good. And so what does that mean life's about? There might be no other time where the words of Blaise Pascal that he wrote a couple hundred years ago are more uh, appropriate than today. Blaise Pascal wrote and said that on every human heart is a God-sized vacuum, he wrote, a God-sized hole, so to speak. And he said that you can throw all of the creation at that hole you want, but it does not get filled up until we encounter God in Jesus Christ. Meaning that if all that your life is, is promotions and success and job opportunities and success for your children and the bumper stickers on your car and the things you can post on Facebook and vacations to the Caribbean and all this kind of stuff, none of it's bad. I'm not saying any of it's bad, but if that's all that it is, then you are a miserable family having great fun photographs in the Caribbean. And so that's why we wrote this. That's what the hope was in this, because into this if-then mindset comes the words from Galatians chapter 5, comes the words of the Apostle Paul, who says to us, there is such a thing as a great life. There is, as we talked about at the beginning, a win. There is something that we want to see. There is something we should be shooting for. And it says, Pascal describes, it's the spiritual life of linking and getting closer and closer to God. And Paul doesn't just say, like, just get closer to God. He says, as you get close to God, as you have this life in us that can only be found in Jesus Christ, he said that you're going to start feeling things and experiencing things, and they're going to flow out from you to the world around you. And it's going to look like you're going to have a lot of love 
love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and generosity and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And I think Paul would be looking at us going, who doesn't want that? If you want to know what a great life is, if you want to know, who wouldn't want that for yourself or for your children or for your grandchildren, for your friends? Who wouldn't want that for the people you care about? And he says, this is the life we can have, and we need to know the markers in order to cultivate it and move towards it in our life. And so each week of this series, that's what we've been trying to do. Each week of this series, we're saying these are the things that as followers of Jesus, we should be seeing and that we can see in our lives. And and when we don't, these are the ways we cultivate it. This is how we find peace. This is how we find joy and purpose. This is what a great life can look like. And so we end today by trying to wrap this thing up by talking about the ninth fruit of the Spirit. The fruit that feels like to me the first time I read this list feels like the most out of place. Because the fruit that Paul talks about is the fruit of self-control. And it just feels a little different. I'm not, it's not anti-self-control. It just feels different. Because the other words feel like more spiritual, right? It's like, you know, if you're going to talk about spiritual maturity, you've got to talk about inner peace, right? Like, that, that has to be in the list. You've got to talk about love because God is love. We've got to talk about joy. But at the end, it's like self-control. That feels more like a leadership seminar. That feels like something in a military academy we're going to get taught. And I don't mean any of that negatively. It just feels different when he's talking about this is the fruit of the Spirit in your life. But I think as I've sat with it this week, it's a really appropriate place for Paul to end this list. Because we don't need to go back to the Greek. We don't need to go back to the original meaning. We're not going, I don't know, what is he trying to say here? He's like, take control of the things that you can take control of in your life. These things, this abundant life is possible, but get rid of the if-then mentality. If this was only different, then I'd be. It's like, take control of the things you can take control of. You can pursue this stuff. Do the things you're supposed to do. Don't get distracted by the things that can distract us from doing what we know is right. Have discipline. Have self-control. He's saying that an abundant life is a disciplined life. It's not one where we're going to wake up every day whenever I feel like waking up and just doing whatever I feel like doing. He's saying that there's more purpose to it than that. And so we have to have the discipline and the self-control and the right things in order to grow, in order to flourish. One of my favorite conversations, I've shared this with a few of you before, but one of my favorite conversations I've ever had, Beth and I were talking about it this week, uh, as a pastor, was with a, a, a young attorney in Atlanta named Peter Fisher. We were at lunch one day, and uh, I was, as many of you know, a philosophy major in college, and essentially what that means is I can talk about nothing for 30 minutes, which should not surprise any of you that I can do that, and I find myself very interesting as I'm talking about nothing, and I'm just circling, talking about nothing, just taking an idea, and it's like just pontificating with no tangible thing that result from it at all, but that's what I like, and that's what I studied, and so I was one day at lunch with Peter, and I remember the restaurant, it was La Fonda restaurant on Ponce de Leon, Atlanta, and And man, I was eloquent that day. I was talking about the mysteries of faith and how we figure this stuff out and the things of God we don't know and how we discern and where is wisdom and how this works together and the things that are unknown. And Peter just like cut me off. He's like, hey, you know, this, can you stop? I totally disagree with you. I was like, well, like what part? I'm like, he said everything you just said. Like, and I just want you to to stop now. (laughs) Because I think that's completely wrong. He said, I think 95% of our faith is not mysterious at all. 
it's really clear what God wants us to do. We just don't want to. I was like, well, that's less fun than (laughs) what I was just saying. He was like, think about it. God wants us to help the poor. We just don't. God wants us to be financially generous. We just have all kinds of creative ways of justifying not being. God wants us to not be spiritual lone rangers and to grow in community and to share our lives with other people. We just choose to be too busy to make time for it. God wants to be close to us, spiritually alive, to commune with us in prayer and in worship. And we just kind of choose other activities to fill our time. That's what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about what Peter, it's like, do what you know is right. Don't get distracted. Have the self-control and the discipline to use your time well. I was reading about the importance of this uh, this week. There was an article in 2013 uh, in the Harvard Business Review. And in this article, it was talking about the importance of focused leadership. That was the, the title of this article. Talking about leadership, whether it's in an organization or whether it's in your family or it's from whatever level, all of us are called to leadership. And they said that an indispensable part of good leadership is fo- the ability to focus. When things are flying around, when emotions are high, when everything's going on, leaders are often the calmest one in the room who are able to sit there and go, this is what we need to do in this moment. It's focus. And in there, they had a whole section on self-control, the exact words Paul writes about here, the importance of self-control in this. And they referred to what they said was a famous study. It may be famous. I had never heard of it before, but maybe some of you have. They said it was a famous study called the marshmallow test. Okay, so it sounds like all of you know it. So just like take that and apply it. Uh, For the two of you who are like me that didn't know what that meant, the marshmallow test was a study that was done in a town in New Zealand in the 1970s. And researchers came in and they interviewed and they studied 1,037 children. Sounded like from the study they were maybe like pre-K, kindergarten, first grade. So maybe like six, seven, eight, somewhere in there. And they took each of them into a room, so same age, same village in a town in New Zealand, and they took them one by one into a room, and it was like, here's the whole study. They gave each child, one at a time, a marshmallow. Like, you can hold it. And you can eat this marshmallow, they told the child, at any point, any time. There's no punishment, nothing's gonna happen. But if you can hold the marshmallow and not eat it for 15 minutes, then you'll get a second one. Now, what they found was a third of the kids, like, didn't even finish the instructions. Like, no punishment, home. They just, like, ate it. Like, not even hesitating, right? I'm hungry, that looks good, and I'm going to eat it. And I can't get in trouble. Uh, The second thing they found is that a third of the, right at a third of the children said they wanted the second marshmallow and tried to wait 15 minutes, but they were holding it, and it was delicious. And some point between minute one and 15, they just ate the marshmallow. They couldn't, they couldn't wait. And about a third of the children waited the 15 minutes and then got the second marshmallow. That wasn't the study. The study was that the researchers left and 30 years later flew back to this village in New Zealand to look at the lives that these children had grown up and started living now that they were in their mid to late 30s. And they wanted to look at, are there any kind of factors among this large group of children that we can tie self-control in with? What they found was a very high correlation between the self-control these children had shown and certain traits as adults. Number one, they were healthier physically. Now that shouldn't be surprising that if it's six, they could not eat a marshmallow and so self-control 
they, that trait continued as adults, and they were healthier as adults. But they were clearly healthy phys- healthier physically. Second thing they found was that they had gotten in a lot less trouble with the police, which I think we can all agree is a good thing. Third is that there was a high correlation between vocational success and fulfillment with the children who had exhibited the self-control and not eating the marshmallow for 15 minutes. In fact, it was such a strong correlation that it led to other studies that have showed us that the exhibition of self-control is more determinant of the success and failure in your vocation that one might have than IQ. It's more important than the family system you're born into, and it's more important than the social class you're born into. Think about that for a second. Those are powerful factors that influence where we go. But that self-control was more determinant than any other factor that they could find. Paul's ending this by going, this is a really big deal. Have the discipline to focus yourselves on the things where you know you're going to flourish and don't get distracted by the many things in life that divert our attention and are a time suck on us. So how I invite us to end this series and how I invite you to think about this as you go forward is to, to understand that in the gospel, there's this weird murky territory between what is an ending and what is a beginning. Right? We see this in the cross, for example. What seems like death is the beginning of resurrection and new life. It's murky of what's a beginning and an ending. And so as we end this series, I want to actually invite us to look forward at the beginning of this week that's before us and ask ourselves, what is the self-control you and I are called to show in our schedules and in our time for how we spend time? Because one of the things we don't think of anymore is that every day you and I are making dozens and dozens and dozens of decisions about how we spend our days. And most of the choices we make, we are in such a rut, we don't even see as choices anymore. Because we wake up and the first thing we do is we check our phones and we see what's going on at work and then we see what's going on in the world and then we feel the stress. If work's going okay, then the world definitely isn't going okay. And so then we can get worked up about something and then we kind of fix a quick breakfast and we're trying to find a time to work out and we, we, we try to get our children to school or we're trying to check in with the right people at the right time and then we're going in and we're doing the things that we're supposed to do and then we come home at the end of the day and we're trying to eat something nutritious and make something for everybody and make certain that everybody's got their homework done and doing the same thing and then we end the day going to bed exhausted at night feeling like we're not certain we've done anything all that well because we're just in these patterns and these rhythms of busyness and I think Paul's saying see the opportunities see the choices As we talk about a covenant, and there could be a collective eye roll here as we end this, because we've talked about this before, but we're not going to move on to some shiny new statement to try to make a new banner about and get our attention. There are very real patterns of how we should spend our time in order to grow spiritually. And one of the things I love about this church is that we haven't just defined our values as theoretical words that we agree with. We've gotten down to the point where like there are behaviors, habits that you can build, like a three-legged stool. That in all of our lives, we should have patterns of solitude. In all of our lives, we should have patterns of community. In all of our lives, we should have patterns of service. And it's in these behaviors that we expose ourselves and come alive to God and the fruit of the Spirit lives in us. Paul's saying, show some self-control as to today and this week, what do you spend your time on? For instance, for solitude, we can be uh, finding ways to pray, devotional lives, using the online devotion, any kind of different things as things are happening. But we have to be disciplined with it. Because I was reading something in the Washington Post this week, uh, or a few weeks ago, on uh, online 
patterns of how we're spending time online, whether it's our phones or iPads or, or whatever, screen time. And one of the things that they're seeing is that there's a very real trend among all different ages of a new pattern of what we're spending more and more time on online. And that is that we are spending growing amounts of time every year, every day, watching YouTube videos. The average teenager is now spending over an hour a day watching YouTube videos, and the rest of us aren't that far behind. And I know that you can watch a John Ortberg sermon on YouTube. I know that. But let's be honest, most of you are watching cat videos, right? <laughs> and they're funny for a few minutes, but what it turns into is a gigantic suckage of time. We have the time. The question is, do we have the self-control to know how to focus ourselves in these areas? Do we grow in community? Do we take before the holidays get crazy and find time in our small group, find time to meet with our mentors, to know how to pray for other people, to build that in before it begins? Do we take patterns of service so that whether it's through our mission partners, like the day of service yesterday, or, or whether it's through going out and, and going to the Thanksgiving table and wondering how can I be of service here rather than how can my needs be met in this meal? It's a different mindset, but it's in these ways that we need to get prepared for now, to today look forward, to grow in these ways so that we might live, not waiting for some outside factor to change so that we can be happy, but to step in today that as we do this, that we might have more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because, friends, there is no law against such things. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would be with us, that you would lead us and guide us, that you would help us to look forward, to see how we spend our time with your eyes, with your heart, with the patterns where we will flourish and those around us will, where the fruit of the Spirit will bubble up within us and flow from us to those around us on a daily basis. Help us to build our lives and our time as followers of Jesus that this abundance might be something that we live out more and more fully each and every day. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing one last song together. <laughs>